This is Candace from Edmonton, Alberta. If you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can get exclusive podcasts, videos, and more. Seriously, it's bananas. Come join us. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast about other podcasts that digs into true crime, pop culture, and of course, TV. And this week, it's racked up Emmys, Peabody's, Golden Globes. Does season three of Killing Eve maintain the same quality? Plus, a documentary that traces the fallout from abolition up to the modern disparities in the criminal justice system. We're talking about Netflix's newly repopular The 13th. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and Donald Hall lookalike, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Nobody knows the former poet laureate of the United States. He look like a wild man? Just say I look like a wild man. <laughs> I look like one of those Alaska Bushmen that oh, God. Laura's husband loves to watch on TV. You look yes. like um, Captain Caveman from those old 1970s Captain cartoons. <laughs> I saw Donald Hall read some very frankly sexual poetry. Um, really? At your age one, one night. Yeah. I, can, I can do that. Ready? Mm-hmm. There was a young lady from Nantucket. <laughs> no, it was there was a young man from Nantucket. <laughs> so long he could suck it. Oh, God! He said with a grin as he wiped off his chin, if my ear was a <laughs> Nice. <gasps> Hot. Henry, add a lot of bleep to that poem. Just say it. Yeah. Leave it in. Oh. Bleep it. Oh, my God. Bleep it. Bleep it. Bleep it. You, you have to, it, it had to rhyme with that was the word he used quite a bit in his poetry. <laughs> oh, okay. Jesus Christ. Lots wow. of bleeps to start this podcast. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and beaver reliever friend, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, that's me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll follow up on that in just a second. Yes. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the hit Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Jumbo, Rebecca. <laughs> Jumbo, Jumbo. Now, Laura, I hear we have some follow-up from last week's conversation about your friend and pest control expert, Mary Weaver, the beaver reliever, uh, as we came to talk about her in the podcast. But I think her business name is what? Actually, Mary Weaver Pest Reliever? Yes, Mary Weaver the Pest Reliever. What but she the f- would do beaver, so it's would yes. be a beaver reliever. <laughs> exactly. So what happened with Mary Weaver? Did she listen to the podcast and she hates us all now? She didn't listen to the podcast, but uh, she and I are going to be taping tomorrow. <laughs> so actually, that would be a few days behind when this podcast is dropping for a special episode of Leave it to Bricker. Nice. We can get to the bottom of the origins of her business marketing plan. Nice. And also anything about the chipmunk apocalypse because they are everywhere. But more importantly, Rebecca, you have received some correspondence from somebody representing Mary Weaver. Yes. Oh, no. And it says, dear Rebecca, please refrain from further mention of my client, Mary Weaver. (laughs) Sincerely, Dick Dreyer, client satisfier. (laughs) (laughs) Where did I receive this correspondence, Laura? Uh, You received it on Twitter, actually. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So it wasn't a real season. Mary Flanders, attorney who slanders. (laughs) No, I don't know the person's real name, but their Twitter handle is real 10 to one. And they're from Tennessee. Yeah. All right. So I can just like, like big sigh of relief. It's not like. Thanks, uh, 10 to one. Yeah. That's probably 10 with two N's, right? (laughs) Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll I'll get more information um, and anybody that's in Patreon can hear that next week and uh, learn all about the life of Mary Weaver. All right. We have a lot to talk about this week. Should we just get it started? Let's do it. Leading off. What are you doing? Working out how I'd kill you. I thought killing wasn't really your thing at the moment. You want to test that theory? You're only as good as your last. Go on. Tell me. How would you do it? I don't know yet. But it would definitely involve the tiny chair. AMC and BBC America have just finished season three of their highly acclaimed and much-loved comic espionage drama, Killing Eve. We see that Eve has survived her bullet wound, but her life is now in ruins. She wants to get back into the spy game to investigate the death of her friend. I think you could do with people 
or something. You don't seem very... Uh... No, Kenny, I'm fine. I know. You just don't seem very happy. Who says I want to be happy? Meanwhile, Villanelle is working with a new handler, but is contemplating whether she wants to continue her life as an assassin for the mysterious group known only as the Twelve. You're the best I ever trained. You're destined for greatness. It's true. You have a brilliant career ahead of you, Oksana. Do you think I'm stupid? Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer return as the rivals driven by equal measures of dangerous obsession and fatal attraction. Can Eve root out the spies? And what will happen when she finally crosses paths with Villanelle? Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about plot points from Killing Eve Season 3. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Lara Bricker, Killing Eve, still one of your favorite shows, yes or no? Uh, yes, it definitely is. It, I think, you know, this season wasn't as dramatic with the plot as past seasons, but it's still got all of the quirkiness that you've come to expect. And honestly, like, how can you say anything about death being as much fun as it is in the show? I mean, <laughs> I never thought I would be like, yeah, somebody got killed and it was super funny. But that's how I feel when I watch the show. You mean like in the episode where she just like walks up to the lady in the ladder and the store and just like pushes it? Like after having this whole like <laughs> complicated like build up, it's going to be some sort of violent stabbing thing. And it's just like, boop. And that's that? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, actually, I really appreciated the uh, piano tuning fork death in this, this <laughs> oh, season. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I was like, wow, that was like good aim. But then she's like, oh, no, there's somebody else here. And it was like the nanny with the baby. Yeah. And she's like, you really like that baby, huh? It's not even yours. And then she's like, boom. Yeah. You're dead. And then she takes the baby. She takes the baby. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so funny. Now, uh, Toby, you wrote a note and you said these prestige shows now seem to have seasons where they have one virtuoso episode. What to you was the one virtuoso episode in season three of Killing Eve? Uh, I think it was episode four, which is the one where it doesn't really focus on just one character, but it has a, everybody's kind of doing different things mm-hmm. and then they, right. they intersect. And a couple times you see the same scene from different perspectives. And so I, I kind of thought that that episode kind of stood out in the quality of its writing and its plotting. And it just kind of reminded me, like Castle Rock, there was that episode about uh, dementia, yep. which I thought really stood out. Mm-hmm. Homecoming, there was the second to last episode where there's that really long scene yep. where you know it's going to end up with Janelle Monet semi-conscious in a boat. That I thought was sort of a virtuoso thing. And I think what made Watchmen so great is... 75% of their episodes were like that, right? right? Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I thought it was interesting that that there are these shows that for whatever reason are like this one episode is we're just going to show our stuff and then the rest of the time will be good or, or okay or whatever. But it's almost like sort of to show what we could do. Mm. Uh, and it's just a little bit frustrating that the rest of it doesn't like live up to that standard. But th- I thought that episode was particularly striking. I thought that episode was great. And I disagree with you that the rest of it doesn't live up to it because I thought some other episodes were also great. And Kevin, I don't know how you feel about the episode that I loved the most this season. I loved the Russia episode. <laughs> you always laugh at things that aren't funny. Clean your face. Can you do it? You are not a child. I want to feel like one. Please. Can you do it? I mm-hmm. loved it, yeah. loved it, loved it. I loved everything about it. It was like a quirky Coen Brothers film. The origin story of Villanelle is kind of laid out in a way that's clever. Her sociopathy or whatever it is that she's got going on is kind of laid out in a way that's clever. What did you think of you know the episode Toby talked about? More important, Kevin, what did you think of that Russia episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, at first, I was not excited to see that's what it was going to be. Yeah. I, you could tell right away because when you looked at the credits, Sandra Oh was not listed. Yeah. So you're like, oh, it's going to be the entire thing's going to be in Russia. And in season one, when they made this detour to a Russian prison, it kind of derailed that whole the, the momentum of that season. That was the low point for me in that one. So I was thinking, eh, this isn't great. I think the episode in and of itself, the story was very entertaining. Uh, who knew the, like how big uh, Ellen John is in Russia? You know, <laughs> at least that house. To the extent that it serves the larger purpose of the narrative about she's torn about whether or not she she wants to be a regular person and know about her family and get out of the assassin business. Does it resolve anything really for the audience other than sort of took a shot? Okay, going to kill your mom. 
It wasn't my favorite part of the season, but it didn't it didn't tank it like I was afraid. All right, here's but why I know it was you great. loved it. I loved it. I loved the festival scene. Yeah, throwing the dung, throwing the dung, the and dung the- contest, <laughs> and you win a fan. You so when the fan. shit hits the fan, right? <laughs> loved that. I loved all the stuff with the brother. I loved the fact that this was the first the little brother. Yeah, the, brother. the, one, the one who lived. No, no, yeah, well, yeah. I love the one who lived in the barn. I love okay. them both, both yeah. brothers. But I loved the whole idea that like this was a killing that was hard for her, mm-hmm. and like we've never seen that before. We've seen her. We've seen her do other things that which killing was hard for of her, her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I didn't feel like it was hard for in her. the aftermath of it. Definitely seemed like she was not. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a choice that okay. she made rather than it being okay. an assignment that she had, right? Yeah, which was the first time we saw her do something like that for that reason because she made a choice. Right. Um, I don't know. I found it affecting. Well, here's the I think sl- it has to do with the fact that let's just be real. Jodie Comer is a baller actress. Yeah. Like it, this would not work without her, right? Oh, absolutely. But here's the thing that I I feel like is is different now than say in season one. We kind of love Villanelle. The good ones, I pick them. The bad ones. You don't want to know. This has been great, guys. Really. Thanks for the good time. She's quirky and unpredictable, and we kind of delight in her wickedness, but she isn't scary. Mm. Like she was in season one. You remember there was one episode, it ends like with uh, Sandra Oh and some of the other folks from the office. They were like out in the woods. Uh, she's stalking saw, them. She was stalking them, coming at them in the woods. Yeah, like, like a and zombie. That, and that was like so freaking scary. Yeah. Even though she's a cold-blooded assassin, we're not afraid of her anymore. Yeah. That's fine, but that's different. That's a difference in the way we perceive her character. Yeah. Now, we do get some new characters in this season. Uh, the amazingly conceived Dasha, former champion gymnast from Russia, mm-hmm. turned handler. And we also get Caroline's daughter, uh, who has a mystifying relationship with her mother. Of course, Caroline's daughter was in Game of Thrones playing, what was that character's name? Oh, uh, she was... Uh, she was the one who, Theon... Theon Greyjoy. Theon's sister. Yeah, sister. Oh, I hate that Jeez, I remember her name. Ms. Greyjoy. This is what happens when you haven't yeah. read the books and you've only watched the TV show. You forget all those stupid names. Yeah. Laura, what do you think of the introduction of the new characters this season? I thought it was great that we got these new characters because we have these really established characters that, you know, are, are very solid and very strong and, and they all have their sort of, you know, nuanced quirkiness and everything going on but now we've got Dasha who she's pretty badass like if you were talking about thinking that like Villanelle is a cold-blooded killer Dasha doesn't seem to have any bone of sympathy in her body but it also I thought was interesting to hear a little bit more of the origin story of Villanelle through Dasha as she's talking about how she made her and what she was like when she came to her and then you know Caroline's daughter uh, that character was just uh, kind of maddening. I just felt like she was kind of clueless. I felt a lot of time like she she got drawn in by Constantine and his sort of romantic advances, which was really a ploy. But then I did feel sympathy for her when Caroline, you know, reveals that she wasn't her favorite, that like, you know, you were your father's and Kenny was mine. And that was the situation. And so it made it very clear that you know, there was a much more complicated relationship there. So, you know, she was clueless, but I'll cut her some slack when you hear the whole backstory. Hmm, but who was the father? Yeah, I know. Was she kissing her own father? That's what I wanted to know. I was like, oh boy. Was it Constantine? <laughs> That's what I wondered. So the thing with Carolyn and her daughter, Toby, I'm curious to know what you think of that. Because Lara found her frustrating, infuriating. I actually felt like the daughter was the only person in this whole series who was behaving like a normal person. Like, hey, mom, like, you're not okay. (laughs) Hey, mom, please talk to me. Hey, mom, like, I just want to have a normal... And, like, the freezing out stuff I found so painful and weird. I don't know, Toby, what did you think of that whole familial dynamic? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought it was funny. She's both the only sort of normal person, and then she's also more of a sort of get in touch with your feelings type of normal person. You know, it's it's a little bit of a commentary on like these psychotics who are the rest of the cast, basically. Mm -hmm. Like nobody else is normal at all. Toby, you don't call a psychopath a psychopath. It upsets them. <laughs> From the comfort of my guest room, I feel safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, uh, another thing that you have to do when you're yeah. going to have multiple seasons of a series and a character is no longer, quote, useful to advance the plot, sometimes you got to get rid of them. Yeah. They dispatched with Nico. Yeah, we thought he was dead. In a way dead, that but... was clever, advanced the plot, but also made it very clear, like, he's not coming back, right? <laughs> 
Well, piss off forever. Piss off forever. (laughs) He can cause complications, which is what you want from a character when you're writing them. But let's face it, Nico was sort of the obstacle for Eve to fully realize her complicated feelings for Villanelle. I don't know the extent that we have to define the relationship. This was sort of something we talked about before, especially in season one. Halfway through, all of a sudden, we're like, wait a minute, does she have romantic feelings for Do you want to be like that? Not anymore. Why not? We never make it that long. We consume each other before we got old. That sounds kind of nice. Because she has a husband and you just like all of a sudden don't automatically go there. Right. Because honestly, there aren't a lot of cat and mouse setups where they're two females. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's, like, it's a guy and a gal and they look sexy together and they're making eyes. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes, you know, or yeah. uh, what's your favorite the thing? Thomas Brown Affair. Thomas Brown Affair, right, yeah. okay, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we'd rarely have two female leads. Right. And so it was very subtextual and then in the second season it was no longer subtextual, it was right. textual. right. That they are attracted to one another in addition to hating one another and being jealous of one another's lives. Right. But sort of the only thing that sort of kept her from running away when they're in Rome was the fact that she's married to Nico and she has this other life. If you get rid of Nico as a character, you remove that obstacle for the writers to make the two of them get together. Can I show you something that's going to blow your mind? Show me. Nico the character has that big goofy mustache. Right. Do you want to see what the actor who plays Nico looks like? I think it's perfect for a podcast. Look how hot this guy is. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm going to cut my mustache off. I'm going clean shaven. I thought Laura, I was rugged. What do you think happened to that poor woman that Villanelle was marrying at the beginning of the season? Oh. That was awesome. I actually had a note about that. I was like, did, did I miss her getting killed or something? Or did she just vanish? I mean, was that a fantasy? Was it even real? It was real. She just walked out on the wedding. Yeah. And when Dasha walks in, she's like, it's my special day. It's my special day. <laughs> this is my special day. Right, I assumed it was like her mother. Yeah. Because uh, we find out later, it literally isn't. But right, yeah. I was thinking, oh, that would be a nice twist that her mother is also an assassin. But Toby, one thing that I liked this season, which, you know, you have to, again, you can't go back to the places you've been when you sort of torch them for use of the plot. So, like, we know they're a little, like secret office was no longer in commission. We know that Kenny had moved on and then died. So they basically sort of move the investigative operation now to this like very Euro crime setting that we've seen in a million other European crime things, which is the investigative journalism office (laughs) where everyone is just like it was like an environmental journalism publication that then she like then hijacked and they're like looking into this international assassin ring Toby that seems like the kind of place that you could work I'm just saying yeah oh yeah 100% (laughs) (laughs) that could be my next stop this podcasting thing doesn't work out it hasn't yeah that's true (laughs) (laughs) Toby one of the things I wanted to ask you about I mean Killing Eve is a very visual show I mean all shows are visual but I think Killing Eve is an especially visual show Mm -hmm. Uh, between, you know, the way that their faces are very exaggerated, the the settings are very exaggerated. One of the most hallmark things of Killing Eve's, you know, visual nature is the costuming. Yeah. Toby, do you think that Villanelle showing up on a Scottish golf course... Wearing that a, was awesome. a full outfit of tartan and green feathers. I mean, this is how you know Jodie Comer's a good actress, right? Because she can just walk around in those clothes and you can imagine seeing her and just being like, oh, look what that, what that lady's wearing and having it not be astonishing. Talk me through your outfit. I was trained to wear clothes that allow a full range of movement. So weird. I was trained to look devastating. Obviously. <laughs> The thing about that outfit is that American guy who comes and helps him out <laughs> doesn't seem to be that bewildered by it. <laughs> like, I don't golf, but if I did and some woman who is dressed like that was asking me for something, I don't know what I would do. Oh, you do it. And I'm thinking about when they go to the dance class or whatever it is, and she's wearing like this pantsuit that looks like it was made out of some like- Wallpaper? Really, really, yeah, like expensive rug or something. This is what I really like about the show. I think it's got- like a very unique feel, pretty consistently visually, and then less consistently through the story. And that's what I that's what I think the the strong stuff is is when they kind of stick to what's original about it. I find this whole series 
a little frustrating because there's some parts of it I really, really like. And then there are parts of it that I think they feel like they have to do sort of normal plot type stuff to get you from point A to point B. That's what keeps me from like really, really liking it and just sort of liking a lot of parts of it. Kevin, I know you love the costuming on the show. I do. It's great. So look, a lot of times, and we've seen this a million times in TV shows and movies, we have one character who is like outrageously dressed. who's like fashionista or whatever. And for the writers go, that is the extent of the character development, that they wear fancy clothes, flashy or whatever. Here, when Villanelle wears these things, whether it is, the, you know, a child's ballerina outfit mm-hmm. or the pajamas she pulls out of the trunk from the, when she stowed away in the car in season two. Yep, or the couture dress she wears in the streets of uh, Barcelona in the episode. Anything, you know any of it it just suits her character instead of the clothes wearing the character this character wears the clothes right the costuming like is done very well here it isn't gratuitous mm. it really enhances the character for once mm. speaking of character and I think they're like selling the fashion right wasn't that like a, a, a kitschy thing on the side which was like there was an app like inspired by the fashions of this show <laughs> so if you want to go golfing in that green tartan uh, Muppet shoulder thing that she was wearing <laughs> you could do that I just want a bunch of Eve's like black turtlenecks. That's more my deal. The turtleneck. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. Laura, uh, I know that you have now fallen deeply in love with the actor Kim Bodnia. Oh, yes. Who plays Constantine. Do you want to tell our audience why you love him so, so much? Well, I uh, developed this love while watching, now I'm on season four of Braun Braun. The Bridge. Also known as Chai TT. But anyway, um, and I just, I love his facial expressions, mm. both in that show mm-hmm. and the show and the the way he laughs yes. is hysterical to me. Then you taught me how to swear in Russian. I did. Mudak. <laughs> so like in the in the bridge, whenever Saga does something, he's like, ah! like he'll do that funny laugh. <laughs> and he does like the same thing in this show. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's sort of infectious when you watch it. In the after show this week, Laura, yeah. you're in season four of The Bridge. Yes. Can we please just talk about it a little bit in the after show, like where you are, how you're feeling? Because I really need to catch up with you on that. The after show seems like a good place to do it. You got it. Yes. Uh, So just a quick question for you guys uh, before we wrap up. The final scene, A Killing Eve, it kind of ends in a weird place, I thought. Um, It felt like the end of the series. Was I the only person who felt like like maybe the end of the series, Kevin? I mean, you could end it there. It'd be fine, but... The message is still, I can't quit you. Mm. You know, that's where we are. I mean, the show is always about how are these two going to get together, right? Every season, it's their uh, rivals and and whatnot, but it's, it's essentially when and how are they going to cross paths? But the idea that, like, but, there's going to be this romantic ending for the two of them, it's, almost, it's impossible. Well, look at they've tried it two other seasons. Yeah. At the end of season one, Eve stabs her. At the end of season two, Philanel shoots her in the back. Yeah. So on season three, where they're on, I guess it's London Bridge, and they get to the middle and they go back to I think back. It was the Tower Bridge. Tower think. Bridge. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll turn around and face the other way. What? I'll turn this way. Have you turned? Can't see you. Now what? Now we walk, and we never look back. But I, I don't turn. Just walk. I mean, I think it leaves the door open for a season four. Toby has a very literary take on this that I want to hear. Go ahead, Toby. I assume it's intentional that it's a play on uh, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, where Eurydice gets bit by a snake and dies and goes to, you know, Tartarus, hell. And Orpheus is, you know, this great musician. And he goes down and sort of charms Hades and says, okay, you can you can have Eurydice back. You can lead her out to the world. But you can't turn around. Like you, if you turn around, she comes back. And so he, you know, he almost gets out there and he turns around and, and she's she's brought back. And that seems to be what's set up. And that you know, Sandra O oh, doesn't want to be in the life anymore. And so Villanelle says, "Okay, well, walk away and just don't turn around." And then she does. And then that's when you know she's being dragged back into the life. What did you think, Laura, about the ending of the season? So at first, you know, I was thinking, "Oh, this is it. This this is the end of the series." But then when we have that part where they turn around at the last minute, I did feel like it was setting it up for season four. And I think season four is going to be Eve 
helping Villanelle escape, and the two of them are going to go on the lamb together. I just don't know where they would go. I don't know where they would go. I mean, even Carolyn doesn't want Villanelle working for her. It's so sad. Hang out with Brad Pitt. <laughs> Drive a car over a cliff. Going with Brad Pitt over to the Property Brothers on HGTV. Toby doesn't know what I'm talking about, but it happened. Let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out... Killing Eve season three. It's on demand. Originally aired on AMC and BBC America. Should you check out Killing Eve season three, Laura Bricker? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up. Uh, this show is a fun show, despite the fact that a lot of people are getting killed. It's got a great cast. It's quirky. It's funny. It's smart. And it's it's seriously one of my favorites. Whenever there's a new season, it's something I look forward to. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Killing Eve season three? I give it a thumbs up. Like I said, I, th- I think it's pretty inconsistent, but I think the good parts are really, really good. And the bad parts are just kind of normal. And that adds up to a thumbs up. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I understand that the critics did not like season three because it wasn't as good as season one and season two didn't have the same spark. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was not really a participant other than just cashing the check. And so I still th- really liked it. I thought it was better than season two. Mm. I will tell you that my 80-year-old father somehow found season one mm. of Killing Eve and I had to teach him how to use the on-demand <laughs> so he could go back and watch the rest of them, and he loves it. Yeah. And I told him, Dad, yeah, this was something we reviewed. We all really like it. It's a special show. It still is. Charby's watching Killing Eve. Yeah. Charby. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I actually thought it was better than season two as well. I thought it was a lot better than season two. I thought it was, it's really difficult to do a third season of a show where the cliffhangers for season one and season two are essentially kind of the same. You know, the betrayal, mm-hmm. the sort of does the person live or die, the, you know, whatever. Uh Season three was more low key. And for me, it was a lot stronger because it depended more on the really earnest performances of all these incredible actors. Sandra Oh is wonderful. Jodie Comer, oh, mwah. can't say enough good things about her. Big thumbs up for me for Killing Eve season three. I will tell you, critics, you are wrong about this one. We're right. You're wrong. All right, Kevin, before we move on, we have some business to attend to. Do we? What do we have going on right now on our Patreon? We have the Crime Writers on After Show. And right. we're going to talk about Laura's experience watching The Bridge. Yes, we have coming up very shortly uh, a new edition of Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker. In which she's going to be talking to Mary Weaver. Beaver Reliever. That's right. Uh, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast will be out shortly. Uh, He had a a group of fantastic folks on talking about the bling ring. Yes. And a very special event happening on Crowdcast. Okay. On Friday, Uh you can celebrate my 50th birthday with With you. Yeah. Via video. We're going to have our patrons come on. You can join me on the screen. You can chat. You can send me virtual gifts. You don't really just say like "Happy Birthday." It's all right. Yeah. You don't. You don't have to send a card. You can if you want to. That's right. But we're gonna have drinks and toasts and have a lot of fun and celebrate. Uh, Doesn't mis- mean I have to go to this one. You don't have to. No, I'm gonna go. You can't fit on the screen, Rebecca. <laughs> I mean, our heads are just gonna. Yeah. I'll just sit next to you and occasionally turn the camera over, and I'll just be, you know. That's fine. Yes. So you get all that by going to Patreon.com/slash Partners in Crime Media. Kevin, do we have any Patreon? Patron Saints of the Week this week. Yes, our Patreon patron saints are Kate Carson and Bliss Peterson. Bless you. <laughs> I should also mention on our Patreon after show this week, Yeah, I'm going to tell Toby and Laura the story of the stupidest fight I have ever gotten into on Facebook. Oh, good. I cannot wait to tell them about <laughs> it. Oh, good. <laughs> Does this have to do with quote unquote vandalism? It does. Okay. It's really good. Kevin and I are going to get divorced soon because- what? I keep getting in these very oh, yeah. stupid fights on my communities. Uh, one my, of us going to the board. One of my town's Facebook pages. I just keep getting these crazy fights. I've just had enough. I've had enough. Why do you care? Oh, we'll talk about it on the after show, Toby. We'll talk about Speaking it. Speaking of why do you care and time is up, <laughs> let's get to our next thing. Let's move on, shall we? The 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. Uh, in other words, it grants freedom to all Americans. There are exceptions, 
including criminals. How did America get to where it is today? A nation with 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. The documentary, The 13th, which gets its name from the amendment that ended slavery, makes the case that the current status of police brutality and mass incarceration can be traced back to white opposition to abolition. One of the things that people have to bear in mind is that when we think about slavery, it was an economic system. And the demise of slavery at the end of the Civil War uh, left the Southern economy in tatters. Uh, And so this presented a big question. There are four million people who were formerly property, and they were formerly kind of the integral part of the economic production system in the South. And now those people are free. Released in 2016, the Netflix doc is timely and trending, touching on the politics, policies, financial influencers, and systematic racism, which causes the unequal application of justice in America. The historical retrospective is also a snapshot of the issues, which becomes heartbreaking when you realize the state of the world has only gotten worse since the documentary was released. We're going to be talking about plot points for the 13th. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our reviews. Laura Bricker, this documentary, I think, is a great package. Like, so if you have a person that comes up to you in this moment when, you know, you are trying to explain why, you know, defund the police is a thing and why Black Lives Matter is a thing and why all lives matter shouldn't be a thing. And you have like an earnest white person come to you and say like, where can I go? What can I read? What can I do? Would you not tell them to immediately stream The 13th on Netflix, Lara Bricker? Yes, I would, Rebecca Lavoie. Uh, you know, I just found this very thorough, very timely, had a lot of really great voices telling the story, and it really laid it out in a way that was easy to follow and really easy to understand, and for me, became very rage-inducing the longer it went on. But the timeliness, when they're talking about what is it going to take to see some sort of sustained momentum, and this was a few years ago that this came out, and they were saying, well, now that things are videotaped, and you're going to see, it's going to be something that's videotaped that is going to be the thing that really catapults this into a movement that continues on a different level. So to me, it's not only timely, but it was sort of just really insightful in the way that um, very accurately tracking how things were going to progress in this area. No, I don't actually think it was like, uh, you know, prescient or anything, Laura, because this was going on, you know, three years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. It's just something that we, I think that, uh, you know, the moment that we're in has now reached new heights And that is why this is a great moment to watch this. Toby, one of the things that I think people do not understand when people talk about the police as not necessarily an agent for good, and they talk about the militarization of the police, and they talk about sort of the role of the police in the criminal justice system and the, you know, the uneven application of the law in different communities, I really don't think most people know the origins of the police in America, the origins of the police as the slave police, as controlling uh, renegade, the scare quotes, black people and keeping them in control. This is the origin story of policing in America. I don't think people actually know that. What do you think, Toby? No, I agree. I, I, I think how blatant and open some of the aspects of systemic racism are would surprise people that when you trace things back and you like think you have this insight now as to these things that were going on but it it was never really that hidden if you follow the history it's it's just right there the whole time but a lot of the stuff that we talk about now again systemic racism it was it was conceived that way and then it was sort of absorbed into society as something that was sort of accepted as being sort of the normal way things are. And it sort of, especially with the police, lost that connection with, you know, oppression, uh, specifically oppressing black people. But that's always been a part of it. It is the institution that is wrong and should not exist in the way that it exists. At least that is what this movement is trying to point out. And that's what this documentary points a very clear picture of, right, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, when they lay it out like this, the case is very credible that the system's foundations were built on slavery, and it's demonstrated how it's gone from A to B to C. 
And, you know, so, you know, we've heard this a lot. The system isn't broken. The system was built this way. Yeah. And so if you if you think about it that way and you look at it and say, wow, have been looking at this wrong for a long time. Laura Bricker, the history that we learn in the 13th is also political history. We see in the mid 20th century how Republicans and Democrats sort of passed this wand back and forth. You know, Republicans in private, not really in private because they're recordings of it, talk about how they're going to Mm -hmm. use race and scare tactics and sort of drum up the era of slavery to frighten people to get laws passed that benefited them. And then they pass the wand to Democrats when Democrats, when they feel like they have to go to the middle Mm -hmm. and do the same thing. What did you think of that political history as it's laid out in the 13th? You know, it was interesting because, you know, I did feel like I was fairly well informed going in, but there was a lot that I learned watching this. And you know, starting with Nixon and Reagan and the war on drugs, and you're seeing this like really tough on crime attitude. You know, we see Nancy Reagan out there with her just say no campaign. And then at the same time, you see this surging prison population and this this feeling and this spin in the media and the spin in the public that this is this is making us safer because, you know, and the way that they are portraying blacks in prison as animals and like monsters. So you're seeing it from that side. But what I was surprised by, I guess I just I don't know why I've blocked this out is that the Democrats were also for a period of time equally tough on crime. And, you know, we see Bill Clinton and we see this three strikes you're out, mandatory minimums, super predators, those type of things were just really difficult. And, you know, things that I still experienced when I was doing defense work with some of these mandatory minimums and, you know, judges not having any discretion in cases where there were circumstances at play that might make it, you know, reasonable not to give somebody that sentence. So the, the documentary what did very effectively was when they were showing just the graphics and the numbers between different decades and like in five-year increments with the prison population that coincided with these changes in laws. So Now, this is not going to be a political statement. This is a factual statement that I'm mm-hmm. sure some of our listeners might view as a political statement. And for our listeners who are tempted to write to me and say that I am being biased or being political right now, this is not a political statement. This is a fact. The fact is that Republicans and conservatives in the mid-20th century planned to use fear Mm. and the suppression of black people as a political tactic. You know, announced as part of a political strategy by Richard Nixon and which morphed into a literal war by Ronald Reagan, um, turning in um, to something that began to feel nearly genocidal. And it is a fact that the Democratic Party had to come toward that in order to maintain any kind of power and be able to get whatever the agenda of Democrats done is. But the other thing that we see in this documentary, Toby, is we actually get some of those other voices in here. Lee Atwater, Grover Norquist, Newt Gingrich. Uh, We have these interviews. We have the Alec interview. This is not political to make the statement. This is fact. And you have people on the other side of the aisle from the Democrats confirming that. In this documentary with no nonpartisan. What do you think of that, Toby, that, that they were able to sort of represent those voices in this documentary? I think just about everybody who is political in this documentary who is actually talking on camera to them is being self-serving in the best way they possibly can be. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's just insane making about the Clintons and that whole sort of third way uh, centrist Democrat thing That was their theory. Mm. I don't know if that's actually true. Hmm. I think they thought that they had to do that. I don't know that that's actually accurate. Right. I thought all these guys, like, it's pretty rich seeing Newt Gingrich, like, suddenly trying to feel black pain. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Grover Norquist (laughs) is still Grover Norquist. (laughs) Yeah, unapologetically so. Kind of a douche. Like, it's all all the liberals' fault. (laughs) Liberals that announced that it was mean to pick on a murderer and a rapist lose all credibility on this discussion. They just lose it. You know, but Paul Weyrich was, you know, he wasn't talking to them as documentarians. I mean, it's him talking in archival footage, but basically saying we need to keep people from voting. Right. Like the fewer people vote, the more mm-hmm. we win. Right. 
And, you know, you have Lee Atwater talking about how, you know, racialized language in politics had to change. And the way you appeal to the sort of quote unquote white working class voter that everybody talks about is by sort of the dog whistle thing about having policies that will benefit white people and hurt black people. And I think they really nailed that Alec guy. What ultimately happened is our board looked at the issues that Alec worked on and decided that we don't do social issues. We are focused on economic issues. We jettisoned basically uh, almost all of our legislation that was pre-2007. So we basically... Uh, fresh slate going forward, a fresh start going forward. And it's like, well, it's funny. We just heard Lee Atwater saying that that's, <laughs> you know, that's the code, right? Right. The, the idea that economic issues don't have like a large racial component is ludicrous. But uh, this is, again, I want to reiterate to our listeners, if you have not seen the 13th and you think we are talking about something that is our political opinion, it's not. <laughs> These are, this is America's documented American history And we have people on the right side of the aisle Mm -hmm. on tape talking about how these are strategies that are used to win. But they are but they're used to win. And they're also used to make money. And they're also used to scare white people. And they're also used to it's not opinion to say that that is the tactic that is the tactic. If it makes Republicans feel better, they should remember that before the 60s. It were the Democrats that had bad people. <laughs> they just happened to, after Johnson, just kind of switch parties. So, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, there was a thing about Alec. It reminds me. A lot of people assume that the political positions follow the money when it comes to lobbyists. It's more. It's more often true that the money follows the positions. There's somebody who's pro-life or whatever. You know who the players are. The money ends up going that way. You know, I'm not trying to say don't blame the lobbyists and the corporations. Yeah, they didn't just go to the store and buy a vote. It's really the politicians. Well, it's really funny. The thing about Alec that that whole section was so interesting to me is, you know, I work in a newsroom. We cover a lot of state house yeah. politics. So many state bills, so many are copied and pasted, not just right. from Alec, but from other national lobbying. No, that's groups. what Alec does. It yes, just, but yeah. so but so many other bills, even bills that seem like a, like like on the surface like good ideas. Yeah. You know, there's a bill called Marcy's Law that like this billionaire from California has been trying to pass in every single state. It has to do with his sister who was murdered. It's a criminal justice bill that increases quote rights of victims, but it's problematic. Like states have that have passed it have had to repeal it oh. uh, for all sorts of privacy reasons and other reasons, but like it is a branded bill that is copied and pasted and it's really interesting. I would encourage anybody who's interested in this kind of thing. If a bill ever comes up from a local politician, maybe a state house rep or something that just seems like kind of sophisticated, copy the text, paste it into Google search, and you'd be yeah. amazed at places you'll see it well, show up. We're, we're kind of getting in the weeds here on this. But the reason it's part of the documentary is because then it's talking about the privatized prison system. Yes. And now as they try to get out of that. The privatized parole. Parole and bail. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Laura, what do you think of Alec? Uh, Criminal justice using, you know, that template of, you know, quote unquote reform backed by huge corporations that have a stake and keeping things as they are, including the kinds of companies that like charge inmates and their families a million dollars for phone calls, food service companies to prisons, that kind of thing. What did you think of this whole part of the documentary? Um, this is a part where my rage really started to hit the Brichter scale. I, you know, I hadn't heard about Alex, so I actually went and did some reading when I was finished watching this documentary. But it just it made me so angry, the control that this entity was having over the criminal justice system in a way that was really affecting vulnerable people, poor people, black people, and in a way that was designed to continue the trends that we're seeing that was making it inequitable for people in the criminal justice system. And I I was like loving that one guy, the guy who um, confronted the man who came in with the Alec bill. And he's like, so is this your bill? And he's like, oh, yes, yes. But and he's like, really? Because right here, it's got this logo on the top of it. And <laughs> it was like, earlier yes. draft. <laughs> I was like, I love you right now. But, you know, there was I when I was reading about Alex, it was like back in like 2012, 2013, there was a lot of media coverage of what was happening with this organization and not so much since. So I'm glad that this documentary has sort of brought it out 
into the light again. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let our listeners know, should they check out The 13th on Netflix? It came out a few years ago, but it is trending once again. Laura Bricker, what do you think? I hate to say thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary. I don't want to be cheeky about it. But do you recommend that our listeners check out The 13th on Netflix? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Yeah, I would definitely recommend that you check it out. If you're trying to get a better sense of the background of the criminalization of blacks and how that evolved in our country. And just, it's it's a really good overview. It's got a lot of good voices and it's got a lot about the criminal justice system that I thought I knew, but I didn't actually know the whole story. So it was very, um, very enlightening. What about you, Toby Ball? Do you recommend our listeners check out The 13th on Netflix? Yeah, it's really good. It's informative. You know, it, it lays the case out pretty clearly. I'll also just make a plug. A lot, a lot of it's based on the book uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, who's one of the talking heads. And the deep dive we did, The New Jim Crow, and we had uh, Marsha Chatlin and Shirley Lairow and Madeline Barron uh, were the guests. And, you know, and especially Marsha and Shirley, I mean, this, this is their area of expertise. They, this is what they spend their time doing, and they're very smart. And um, they, you know, added a lot to my understanding of these issues, and uh, I, I did not do them... <laughs> any any justice with with anything i talked about tonight but uh if you if you are on patreon definitely listen to what they have to say i would also recommend marcia chatlin's book franchise uh it's a book about mcdonald's sort of infiltration of the black community but it's also a book about protests and it is so good Check out Dr. Martian Chatlin's book, Franchise. You will not regret it. It's so, so good. I have it on my Audible. It's great. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Should our listeners check out The 13th on Netflix, yay or nay? Uh, yeah, thumbs up. Ava DuVernay is a very important director and documentarian. She did uh, When They See Us, mm-hmm. also from Netflix. I mean, yeah, there is a lot of stuff here that you know, you know and you feel, but to have it placed out like this was really moving. So... I think, and Netflix has, you know, curated a, a list of uh, Black Lives Matter related material. All of it is worthwhile. I think that this documentary probably didn't get the due it deserved when it first came out. Now's a good time to revisit it. Thumbs up. I agree. I actually think you should sit with your family and watch it. It's a great, pretty, like, what is it, an hour and a half long, yeah. concise Beautifully made, beautifully packaged, difficult to watch in parts with some difficult imagery. But I think it's important to see that imagery in this case. And I wouldn't shield your kids from any of it. I think it's a really, really important watch, beautifully made, and will really recenter you in everything in the moment that's happening right now. If you have questions, if you want to learn how you can be a better ally, how you can talk about these issues in a smarter way, watch the 13th on Netflix. Big thumbs up for me. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. week. Here's the buzz. Detectives in Washington state arrested a man who had stolen $200,000 worth of beehives. Authorities say Perry David Bays snatched unattended hives up and down the West Coast. After a tip, cops tried to catch him in a, quote, sting operation. Oh, I see what you did there. They accused Bays of operating, and we're not making this up, a honeybee chop shop. He's now facing felony what? charges. I guess he's cutting the, the hives up and starting new hives. Who knows? Yeah. Meantime, police are working to reunite the little buggers with their keepers. Panel, we're creating a new show. Are these bees yours, Mr. Johnson? Law and Order. <laughs> special Insect Unit. Laura Bricker, what crimes will Law and Order Special Insect Unit be investigating with their elite squad. Um, I'm sticking with the bees because there has literally been a bee mystery in my neighborhood for the last two weeks. Um, my neighbor across the street, one of his his swarms of bees like escaped. Oh. So there's a swarm of bees going around Exeter right now. And so people will be like, we saw him here, we saw him there. And it has led to a lot of bee jokes. <laughs> we have somebody saying, I'm sure someone will keep a bead on them. Nice. Be on the lookout. Mm, nice. I hope they behave so nobody will get stung. Nice. If only they had followed the Bible, they wouldn't be giving you such beatitudes. <laughs> Just out of reach. I almost saved them. It's unbelievable. So uh. um, I'm going with the bees. And I'll, I'll report back. Lars Town is full of dad jokes. That's all I got to say. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> 
Toby Ball, if we're creating a new show, Law and Order Special Insect Unit, what crimes are we, this elite squad, investigating? Episode two is murder hornets. (laughs) Kevin Lee, what do you think? Episode three, white collar crime involving wasps. (laughs) I mean, why is nobody thinking about what happened to Rebecca's pink and yellow moth that is obviously we're investigating on Law & Order Special Insect Unit. We should probably wrap it up on that. Now, before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? Well, Rebecca, speaking of your moth, Mm -hmm. um, we have another moth that I would like to share. All right. Somebody named Me and Totoro. Longtime listener. Mm. Has sent us a elephant hawk moth in Scotland that is also very pretty colors like yours. And I was um, very enamored with this elephant hawk moth. And I would also like to send out a shout out another of our longtime listeners, Jeff Brumley. His dog Cinder, the Yorkie Poo, is going through some kidney and cancer issues, but has a pink camo bodysuit and so that she doesn't obviously get at her stitches. So I hope that Cinder is doing better now, Jeff. I love Jeff Bromley. I hope your dog is doing better too. Lara Bricker, folks want to reach out to you with their insects or cats or dogs or lizards or goats to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, They can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, if Grover Norquist wants to reach out to you and say hi, how can he find you on Twitter? I would welcome... Anything from him <laughs> at Toby Ball NH. You would not. You would not. Unless he retweets your UFO podcast. Let's be real. He'd probably be into UFOs. Kevin Flynn. <laughs> Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter, how can they find you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Lara Bricker's very charming Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Plus Kevin's 50th birthday celebration yeah. this Friday. Go to party! Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoy. Our social media and newsletter maven is on maternity leave, but it doesn't mean we don't love her anyway, and her name is Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we are putting on funny glasses and singing Elton John songs in Russian accents. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Toby, we've noticed that your file, yeah, the file which is usually about 500 meg, is two gig. Let me, uh, let me just suck up the other mic. No, the mic is fine. It isn't the mic at all. No, 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 Toby, not- don't change the mic. We just want to let you know your file size is huge. <laughs> yes, I'm not compensating for anything. <laughs> you know what they say about a man with a big file size? Takes a long time to upload. <laughs> oh my big God. hands. Oh my big, God. Big, big hands. <laughs> <laughs> Partners in Crime Media. Media.